Father God, we thank you uh, that we can come into a place like this and we can sing your praises even through a mask. I'm really thankful, God, that I, I can actually come here and hear others worshiping you and that, that encourages me to be a worshiper. I'm also thankful, God, for the reminder this morning that we are here. We are meant to be creatures who magnify Jesus Christ. And we do that on the altar of our lives. What a great phrase that was that we sang together. On the altar of our lives was where we offer sacrifice. By the decisions we make, the things we do or don't do. We, when, we, when we consciously uh, live our lives to honor you and to glorify you, that is magnifying you, Jesus. And would you be magnified in us now by the giving of your spirit and by the preaching of your word? Uh, may we be faithful to that. And God, may, may your spirit use, us, use it to change us. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Exodus. Here we go. Uh, this book opens... And uh, as it opens, this, there's this great big looming promise that was given uh, repeatedly uh, in the book of Genesis, this big promise of God, and it's really uh, unfolded in the life of Abraham. And uh, the, the promise is to, to Abraham that God will make a great people, a great nation uh, come from his descendants. His descendants will be so numerous, nobody will be able to count them. And they will also be given a land, a land of their own, which you recall Abraham never received. And now as we come to the book of Exodus, it would appear that that great promise is in jeopardy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph, they're all dead. And uh, their descendants are now slaves, slaves there in Egypt. That doesn't seem to be what God was promising. Uh, and we kind of wonder, therefore, man, what, what's going to happen to the promise? What's going on with the covenant? Uh, what's happened here? So there's a clue that comes early on in the book of Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. This we read. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land filled with them. The word to notice there is that word fruitful. You may remember uh, that that is the very first command that God actually gave to Adam and to Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, multiply. And then uh, Abraham comes along a little later and uh, God says to uh, Abraham something very similar. Uh, he says, I will make you very fruitful. Do you, re you remember also even prior to that uh, in the covenant that God made with Noah, when Noah and his, descend and his uh, family get off of the ark, God says, be fruitful and increase in number. So this is a repeating theme as God covenants with people. And so now here we see in verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and had greatly multiplied. This is significant. The writer wants us to see something, namely that God is at work. Because oftentimes we are just like they, the Israelites, we look around us and we observe our circumstances and we wonder, is God at work? Where is God? What is God up to? Well, the writer of Exodus even though the situation is dire, wants us to understand that God is at work. Now, the Israelites probably didn't recognize that. I mean, they're in Egypt. They're in a foreign land, right? And uh, they've become slaves. Things are not going in any sense the way they want them to go. 
But the writer is letting us know the backstory. God is at work. And he wants to make sure that we understand this as we read the story of God's activity among the Israelites. It's no accident that the Israelites are being fruitful and multiplying greatly. Why? Because God is at work. Now, as we know, in the covenant, God, this, this covenant that God made with Abraham, he promised basically two things. One was a people, a lot of descendants, a nation, in fact, would be made of them. The other was land, you recall, a place where God's people would live and thrive and create a kingdom that would honor God. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And to be able to understand the Old Testament, we need to grasp the significance of this land uh, that God had promised to give his people. Canaan, of course, uh, is an interesting piece of property. It's an interesting land. It's really a crossroads. Consequently, century after century after century, both before Jesus and even after Jesus, world powers met and fought for control of this area. Not so much because they wanted to live there. But because militarily and financially, this was a very strategic strip of land in the ancient Near East. So it's no accident that God promised uh, this land to his people. When armies or merchant caravans or travelers, frankly, of any kind would pass through this area, they would encounter God's truth. They would hear about God's promises. They would become aware of God's laws, and they would meet God's people. And all of these things would spread then that message throughout the known world because of those kinds of activities. So it's, it's a very strategic piece of property. And that's why there are so many battles fought over it through the centuries. Now, another thing that's quite significant about Israel living in this area, they would have to depend on God now, every hour, every day, every week, every month, etc., they would have to depend on God for their survival because lots of people wanted this property. You see, Israel would never be, a term we use today, Israel would never be a superpower. God had a mission for them to be sure, but it never involved having that kind of power and it never would involve that. David and Solomon's kingdom had a kind of a small window of time where their kingdoms could flourish and even dominate the local region. But following Solomon's reign, David's son Solomon, all the kings that were in the north, including the kings that were in the south, these kingdoms existed solely because from around 1200 B.C. up to about 750 B.C., there was no one dominant world power. There was Egypt in the south, in combat with, you know, Assyria in the north or the Babylonians in the north. There was this conflicting power struggle always going on, kind of a delicate balance of power that allowed the nations of Israel and Judah to grow and be fairly independent and in control of their own local regions. Are you with me so far? Okay. Those of you that like history are, the rest of you are asleep. Understand, God never gave the status of a superpower to his people. Uh, He just gives them essentially two things. He gives them opportunity because they are living in a crossroads. There's lots of opportunity to spread the message, to spread their ideas, to prosper there in the region. But he also gives them his presence. And because of that, the world actually would never be the same because of this little kingdom 
that would exist here in this crossroads who knew God and worshiped God and told others about God. But before uh, we can get actually to that kingdom existing, uh, the people of God have got to get up and get out of Egypt. And uh, we have to see the promises of God fulfilled. They have to get out of slavery. Now, up through verse 7 here in chapter 1, that's all good news. But in verse 8, we start to get the bad news. It says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And uh, there's a warning right there. And all of us who've read the story, we know know where this is going, right? Uh, On the one hand, God made this wonderful promise. Uh, On the other hand, though, the circumstances that God's people find themselves in, those circumstances are getting more and more and more desperate, more and more alarming. Humanly speaking, it actually looks like the promise that God has made has less and less and less a chance of being fulfilled. All through the first half of Exodus, there is this tension that builds. And there's a reason for that, an important reason. The writer wants us to realize that when the people are finally Um, finally delivered, finally rescued out of Egypt, it was all God doing it, (laughs) right? Uh, There was no other way. There was no other deliverer. There was no other reason than God and God alone for their salvation. And the writer wants us to grasp that. And the writer wants us to understand this too, that when our circumstances get desperate, because understand, when you read the Bible, when you read these Old Testament stories of God interacting with his people, the same things that God was doing back then, God is doing today. The deliverance that they needed back then, we need today. And we're we're to consciously be aware of that and to learn from these stories. And so when our circumstances get desperate, when we face a Pharaoh or two, so to speak, guess what? We can stay faithful. We can hang on to the promises of God. We can wait for him to lead and for him to work. Why? Because we have seen time and time and time and time again in the pages of God's word, the faithfulness of God to his promises. Even when 400 years went by for the Israelites, of wondering, where is God? It encourages us. I mean, none of us are going to live 400 years, but, you know, it encourages us that God is at work. And so we read, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And so it has been centuries since Joseph died. Nobody in Egypt cares about Joseph or his descendants anymore. The new Pharaoh feels free to enslave and even to terrorize the Israelites. But the more he oppresses them, and this is so uh, wonderfully spiritually ironic, the more he oppresses the people of God, the more fruitful they are the more they multiply until they're filling the entire land. And so the Pharaoh decides on a policy of infanticide. He's feeling he's got to do something about this to control the population, the multiplying of the Israelites. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. There you go. If you're looking for a girl's name, Pua. Uh, When you help the Hebrew women, the Pharaoh says, in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. 
Now, what's interesting to me in that is that the, the women don't say to the Pharaoh, you know, because we fear God, we're not going to do that. Instead, what they do is they, they tell them a lie. What, what they tell them is that, you know, these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. I mean, the babies are popping out so fast we can't even get there. That's what they tell the Pharaoh, and he buys that. Dumb men. But uh, they're telling a lie. And what's interesting to me in this situation is it does raise the question, is it okay to lie in such a serious situation as this, a life-threatening situation? And um, do you want a long answer or a short answer? Okay, short. Somebody said short first. Okay. The short answer is no. No, it's probably not a good idea to lie. It's probably better to tell the truth. What if they had said to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you know, we respect you, etc., blah, blah, blah. But because we fear God, we can't do that. We don't know what would happen had they said. Maybe they'd have been killed. That's a possibility for sure. But they choose to lie. And before we judge these women too harshly, you know, consider the context, right? They've been ordered to commit mass murder by a genocidal maniac. And the only way they can think of to save their lives and the lives of these children is to tell a lie. And um, you have to agree that lying certainly is a lesser sin than murder. You know, you've heard people say before that all sins are the same. They're all of, uh, they all separate us from God. That's absolutely true. But, but it's not quite true that all sins are the same. Some sins have much more grave and serious consequences. Uh, and in this is an example. The sin of murder has much more serious consequences than the sin of lying. But both are sins. Both things separate us from a holy God, right? But now, here's the deal. <laughs> If we were to try to use a story like this to say, it's okay to lie sometimes. If we were to try to use that kind of logic to justify the kind of self-serving deceit that most of us engage in, you know, in other words, lying that, that breaks community, that destroys trust, uh, lying that promotes falsehood. Friends, if we do that, we would be making a huge, huge mistake. For one thing, we would be breaking the ninth commandment And when we break a commandment, any commandment, we are dishonoring God. And understand our lives are really meant to be all about honoring God, all about magnifying God, Jesus Christ. That's what our lives are supposed to be about. Be clear on that. So let's just say this. If you are ever asked by a genocidal maniac to commit mass murder, and the only way you can think of to not commit mass murder is to tell a lie, well, we won't judge you too harshly, okay? We'll be gracious, as we should be for Shifra and Pua. One other interesting thing about this story, it jumps out to me, and it has to do with the names. What is Pharaoh's name? Anybody know? Bible doesn't tell us, does it? We don't know Pharaoh's name. The archaeologists and historians speculate that this might be Ramses II or it might be Seti I, but the fact of the matter is we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But interesting, what are the midwife's names? That we do know, don't we? Shifra and that great name Pua, right? You see, these midwives, let's keep in mind who they are. They are servants to slaves, right? The point being, they don't count. They are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of Egypt's social ladder. But not in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, these women are heroes. 
These women risked their lives to save lives. And so God tells us their names. We don't know Pharaoh's name, Pharaoh Shmero. We don't know. But we know their names, Shifra and Pua. These women are important people in the kingdom of God. And God wants us to know who they are and wants their names Remembered, And that's why still today we can mention the names of the midwives, but not Pharaoh's. And I would submit to you that this is just another example, another time where God takes a culture and turns its value system upside down, showing us that the first will be last, showing us that the humble will be exalted, showing us that the servant will be the greatest of all in God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom is not like any worldly kingdom. And I mention this because we get so used to thinking. I mean, we grow up learning and, and embracing this ideology that says the rich, the powerful, the beautiful people matter, right? Only they matter. Only they will be remembered. But that, my friends, is not true. Not in God's kingdom. If you are loving God, if you are serving God, if you are walking with God, well, guess what? It doesn't matter if you sit in the Oval Office or sweep the basement floors. It does not matter if you are loving and serving and following God. You not only matter, but your life gives him glory and honor. And God knows who you are and God delights in you and in what you do. You are not obscure. You are not unimportant to him. And Shifra and Pua, they remind us of this great truth. And I say amen to that. And so you see uh, in our story, the people of God are becoming even more and more and more numerous despite Pharaoh's order, which in verse 22, this is what he said to the midwives, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Imagine that. Drowning babies floating in the But let every girl live. You see, because of these midwives, that is not happening, at least not the way the Pharaoh wants it to happen. Now, as we know, as the story continues, one of the babies who's uh, actually saved, the baby's name is Moses. And the text says that he is saved by his mother. And you know the story. I'm not going to read it or even tell it all. But mom saves Moses, raises him for a while. And then as babies do, they get noisy. And, you know, something's got to be done. And she puts him in a reed basket and floats him down the river and, and uh, has her uh, Moses sister kind of follow along. And you get the impression, guide the little floating reed raft down to where the Pharaoh's daughters and, and the nobility are bathing in the river. And lo and Behold, the Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses in this basket and decides, decides to raise him herself. Put that in quotes because the, the, the sister is there and says, oh, I can get you a Hebrew midwife if you like. That's like a slave to take care of, your, of the baby that you're going to decide to, to raise. And of course, that is Moses' mother. It's really beautiful in the providence of God how all those events come together. And so Moses is raised in the courts and with the education system of the Egyptians. He grows up and he becomes somehow concerned for his people, the Hebrews, 
But it would seem that in spite of his caring for and maybe even knowing about some of his ancestry, uh, he is not yet really that much aware of who God is and not really uh, you know, living his life for the honor or the glory of God and probably doesn't even know God because we read in Exodus 2.11, it says one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and glanced this way and that and seeing no one he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand I think that breaks one of the commandments too Moses murders an Egyptian that's who Moses is his solution to giving freedom or relieving the pressure on his people is, is murder now, obviously, some people saw what had happened. Word of what he did gets around. And when Pharaoh hears about it, Pharaoh puts a price on Moses' head, which would lead me to believe, we don't know this for certain, but it would lead me to believe that there's already some bad blood between Pharaoh and his daughter who took a Hebrew child and reared it within the Egyptian system and, and no, no household of nobility. And perhaps Pharaoh doesn't like Moses to start with. We don't know that, but you got to wonder. And so what does Moses do? Well, Moses flees for his life. Now he has no people. He's got no country. He runs to the land of the Midianites, which if you look at a Bible map, is kind of in the northwest corner, northwest corner for you, uh, of Arabia. And there he is sitting by a well, and he notices some young women with flocks. These are shepherdesses. We find out later that they are seven daughters of a priest of Midian, named Ruel or Jethro. He goes by both names. And uh, just kind of an aside, I, I can't help but wonder when I read this story, you know, what God does Ruel or Jethro worship? It's not Jehovah. So what God is he a priest of? And another question that occurs to me is, you know, probably for the next 40 years, what God do you think Moses is worshiping? Probably the God of his father-in-law who happens to be a priest to that God. Kind of getting ahead of myself though. Let's back up for a moment. So Moses sees these shepherdesses, right? Bringing their flock to a well and they are being chased away, kept away from a well by another group of shepherds. And Moses, we don't know this for sure, but we're starting to get the impression that maybe he just has a passion for justice wanting to see justice done. He just can't stand by and see people being oppressed and he will single-handedly jump into that situation and come up with his own fix, his own solution to it. Uh, that's what he did in Egypt. That's what he seems to be doing now. And it's, uh, you know, it, it leads to interesting, um, interesting consequences. You, you know the saying, don't help a woman with her goats unless you plan to marry her. <laughs> You've all heard that saying, right? No, of course you haven't. I just made it up and it's stupid. I'm sorry. But, but it does work out that Moses helps the women with the flock and he does end up marrying one of the shepherdesses. So maybe it should be a saying. Joseph uh, ends up marrying Jethro's daughter, Zipphora, and they have a son, Gershom. And it looks like Moses is going to spend the rest of his life there in Midian, taking care of flocks, being a shepherd, and, uh, and living in the land of Midian. But as always, God is at work. And it's behind the scenes. Not sure anybody was really observing the work that God was doing. But the writer wants us to observe it as we read this story. 
And so in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During that long period, these 40 years that Moses is in Midian, the king of Egypt died. Pharaoh's dead, the one that wanted his head. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, who heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So God remembers his covenant. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that God forgot about his covenant. It doesn't mean that. Uh, quite, quite the opposite, really. It's, it is very important, this statement, that God remembered his covenant. Uh, what it almost certainly means, every time in the Bible you, you read about God remembering something, what it usually is is a tip-off that God is about to work. He's about to do something really big, something really dramatic. So, you know, watch out. Here it comes is kind of the, the warning of that message. Something big is about to happen, and it does. Here in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb. This is Mount Sinai later on, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Let's get this picture as accurately in our mind as we can. This is the angel of the Lord. This is an Old Testament theophany. This is an appearance of God. And this time he's appearing in a bush that's burning. But, but don't mistake the fact that when Moses looks at this bush, he's also looking at the angel of the Lord. This is almost certainly Jesus. It's an Old Testament appearance of God. Uh, in, in this reference, angel of the Lord is, you know, just that. It's, it's that Old Testament appearance of God. So what's uh, so amazing to me is once again, God shows up in the most unexpected place at the most unexpected time. This pattern repeats over and over and over and over in the scriptures. Moses is just tending his flock, same old, same old, same thing he does probably just about every day. It's, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. It's very, very ordinary. And right at that moment, God the angel of the Lord comes to meet him. And the angel of the Lord peered to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses, you know, I think sees the angel of the Lord. He knows that this is God and the bush, you know, is not burning up. This is totally weird, totally out of the ordinary. And uh, so he goes over to check it out. And as he approaches, the angel of the Lord says, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And this is the first time this word holy appears in Scripture. The ground, the bush, the area around it where Moses meets the angel, it is holy. And what that means is it is set apart from everything else. Because God is there, this is different. Because God himself is different. God is different than everything and everyone else. God is pure. God is perfect. God is good. God is righteous. God is eternal. The list goes on and on. And frankly, nothing else is. No one else is. God is utterly and completely set apart morally, set apart metaphysically. He is holy. That's what we begin to learn here. And we come back again and again to this idea of holiness. In verse 7, we read that the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so once again, this set-apart holy God sees. This set-apart holy God is concerned This set-apart holy God has come down and is going to rescue. And so he says to Moses, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I love that. It's just so dang matter-of-fact. It's like God is saying to Moses, Moses, uh, I want you to go to Pharaoh, a tyrannical dictator, yes, uh, most powerful leader of the most powerful nation uh, on earth, and just tell him to let his prime labor force go so that they can go out in the wilderness and worship me, and then check back with me when you get that done because I might have something else for you to do this afternoon. I mean, that's kind of how that reads. This is what I want you to do. And, And it's kind of like that for a reason, understand. You see, none of this whole story is any big deal for God. Nothing ever is. For God to get his people out of Egypt is no big deal. But, and this is a big but, as we will see, God uses this long, arduous process humanly speaking, even though he could have accomplished all of this with, you know, figuratively speaking, a snap of the fingers. God uses this long, arduous process. Isn't that how he works in your life? I mean, he doesn't snap his fingers and you're changed. You're just a whole new man, a whole new woman, a whole new person. No, no, the good news is we change. The bad news is it's usually a long, arduous process. God uses process to change the Pharaoh, to change Egypt, to change Moses, to change Aaron, and oh yeah, by the way, to change his people. And it's interesting. God always uses process to change and to transform his people, to change and transform us. I don't think it's ever any different. You see, our growth, our sanctification comes through trusting in and waiting upon God to work. It goes back to the chorus we sang earlier that we want to magnify Christ. How? By by knowing uh, the fact and living out the truth that our life is an altar. On the altar of our life, we sing. What do you do on altars? You make sacrifice. You do understand, I hope, that your life is a sacrifice. It's something to be sacrificed for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And and as you sacrifice your life, go through this long, arduous process, you give him glory, great glory, even in the little decisions that you make, even in the little faithfulness you show. God delights in that. This is what our lives are about. This is what gives my sweeping a floor meaning or my preaching a sermon meaning or whatever it is I do meaning. So, um, 
God says, go, Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses says, okay, God, I got this. Let's do this together. This is going to be great. Here we go. No, if you've read the story, you know that's, that's not how it plays out at all. God calls Moses to do this great thing, and Moses has lots of reasons why he should not be expected to do it. Five, in fact. Verse 11 Moses says, well, well, you know, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Nobody elected me. I'm not famous. I'm not powerful. I'm not even volunteering for this, you know. And God says, well, Moses, I will be with you. That's really all Moses needed to know. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And uh, Moses responds back to that by saying, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Well, then what will I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So God reveals his great personal Name. This is the tetragrammaton, uh, meaning four letters. It's the four Hebrew letters read from, you know, from right to left. You see, it's Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, those four Hebrew letters. And when we transliterate them into our English Bibles, it's Yahweh or it's Jehovah. That's, that's the name. Uh, this is the name that's so revered by Talmudic Jews that they don't even pronounce it, not to this day, when they read the scriptures. We don't know the correct pronunciation. Now, the significance of God making his name, this name known to us is that he is a God who reveals personally himself to us and to his people. He reveals his character. He reveals his identity in his name. This name declares that he is unchanging. It declares that he is eternal. It declares that he is the, the one and only thing that is self-existent. He does not depend on anyone or need anyone or need anything outside himself. He is almighty God, the great I am. And yet, this God entered into covenant with Abraham and all his descendants right down through the story, story after story after story, where God entered into covenant with you. In giving Moses his name, he is saying, you can know me. You can know what I am like. You can know that I see. You can know that I care. You can know that I rescue. You can know that I will be with you. And of course, in all of this too, one of the amazing things when God keeps retorting back to Moses, uh, one of the amazing things to me is the patience of God. God uh, promises Moses in three, chapter 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you, he tells Moses. And that should have been good enough. That's God's promise. But Moses is still not so sure. He says, Moses answered, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. I bet that was hilarious to watch that. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. That's an interesting little tidbit of information. 
Let me ask you, if you were told to pick up a dangerous poisonous snake, which end would you pick up? Now, you might say the tail, but if you think about it, that would be a deadly mistake. You grab a snake by the tail, and that snake can coil around and bite you. You want to get control of the head, the deadly part of the snake, because that's really the safest place to pick up a deadly snake. So you got to ask the question, so why does God tell Moses to grab it by the tail? And you want a long answer or a short answer? You seem to prefer short answers. The answer is we don't know. (laughs) Not really. But I got a hunch, and you knew this was coming. I got a hunch. I think God might be saying to Moses, Moses, you got to learn to trust me. And you got to pay attention to the details. (laughs) And I want you to pick the snake up by the tail, even though that seems risky, very, very risky with you. Because Moses, here's the thing. You're going to come across dangerous snakes for the rest of your life. And you might as well start obeying me as you encounter those snakes right now and do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it. And so we read that Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. And and then God gave him a few more miracles to perform for the Israelites. But Moses is still not really ready to sign on for this duty. And Moses says, you know, speaking God, speaking is not my thing. I am not a good speaker. I am not qualified for this, Lord. And so then the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. When God gives you something to do, whether it's shepherding sheep, getting people out of bondage to slavery, sweeping the floor, whatever, when God gives you something to do, obey him. God will be with you in it. He promises to be. Here's the thing. In this dialogue back and forth between Moses and God, Moses is running out of excuses. (laughs) And I I love this. He's run out of excuses. And in verse 13, he just says, Oh, Lord, please send somebody else to do it. (laughs) I I don't have a good reason. I I just don't want to do this, God. Uh, This is too risky. It's not me. I'm not suited for this. Just send some body else. I I don't want to do this, God. And at this, God gets angry. But again, I marvel because even in his anger, God is gracious. And so God tells Moses, Aaron, his brother will accompany him. And so now Moses, you know, signs on to this very reluctantly. And Moses goes and talks to his father-in-law and and they set out, Moses with his household, they, they set out to go back to Egypt and to begin This process, arduous process of seeing God raise his people up and bring them out of bondage in Egypt. And along the way, there's this rather odd incident that happens. And with this will be done. It's in Exodus 4. We read these words. It says, at a lodging place on the way. So they've already gone some distance away uh, from Midian. The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Take that in for a minute. God is about to kill Moses. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, Gershom's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. And so the Lord let him, let Moses alone. 
At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Does this look weird to anybody? Is this a goofy story? You wonder, what the heck is going on here? What does this mean? Well, we get a huge clue in verse 26, that last verse I read, that this whole confrontation is about circumcision. Or really, really what it's about is covenant. Because circumcision is a sign of covenant. So this is all about covenantal issues, being in relationship with God. And Moses, it appears, had neglected to circumcise his son Gershom, though we would assume, of course, he knew better. And what also might be the case is that Moses himself, we don't know for sure, but Moses himself might not have been circumcised. And what all of that means, whether Moses hasn't been circumcised or not, it still means the same thing, is that Moses is holding his family outside the covenant relationship with God, this God who's called him to go serve and deliver his people out of bondage. And there is no way that he can take on this mission and not be a part of God's covenant people because God is the God of the covenant. And God takes this breach of covenant really seriously. And he apparently is doing something to Moses that is presently killing him and about to, you know, kill him. And so Zipporah, his wife, recognizes what's happening here. Very smart woman. And she takes a flint knife and she circumcises their son. And Moses should have done this long ago. And she apparently uh, touches Moses' feet with the foreskin of her son, Gershom. Now, some of you may know that the word feet is often in a Semitic culture, a euphemism for what? You don't want to say it, do you? <laughs> Genitals. So, so Zipporah has taken the foreskin and she's touched Moses' genitals with this. Again, what, what's going on here? What, what seems to be happening is that God is attacking Moses and about to kill him. Uh, he's perhaps even incapacitated or soon to die. Zipporah immediately figures out what's going on, which tells me that they've had some discussions in the past about Gershom you know, being uh, circumcised and certainly Moses himself being circumcised if he hasn't been. And uh, this is all an indicator that uh, you know, th this kind of conversation and, uh, and being part of the covenant community. There have been discussions in this family about this and Zipporah steps into the situation and seeks to do something about it. She circumcises her son. She touches Moses' genitals as the kind of an atonement for Moses' sin of not circumcising his son and perhaps not being circumcised himself. And... She saves the day, is what she does. You know, the statement that she makes, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, it's an interesting statement. It's not necessarily a negative statement. The first time I read it, I looked at it and I thought, well, I guess what she's saying is, what a lot of bloodshed you and your God are to me. That's kind of how I interpreted it. But actually, that's probably not what she's meaning. Uh, more likely, what she's meaning is she's saying, you are a blood kin, a blood bridegroom to me. In other words, we are members of one family and our family is part of the covenant people of God. And you should be demonstrating that 
in our family, and so should he have been demonstrating that. And again, it's, it's Zipporah's quick insight and action here that saves the day, literally saves Moses' life. Now, no matter how you understand her words to Moses about being a bridegroom of blood to me, at the very least, she is challenging her husband to be faithful to their covenant-keeping God, which he should have been doing. And of course, that highlights the really big problem in all of the story so far, doesn't it? Because you see, try as Moses might, he can't be faithful, not the way he should be, not perfectly. You know, as great a task as God gives to Moses, Moses is reluctant and says, no, just get somebody else to do it, God. As great and gifted a leader as Moses is, if you read the rest of the book of Exodus, you find out there were many failures to his leadership. As much as he loved his people and now is coming to love his God, what we discover in the life of Moses is failure after failure after failure after failure, time and time again. Moses has already failed to deliver the Hebrews when he was back in Egypt the first time. He thought that murdering that Egyptian would trigger something, would do something to alleviate the, to alleviate the, the slavery that his people were under. It didn't work. His plan didn't work. He failed to heed God's call when God said, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people. Five objections. He failed to circumcise his own son, bring his own family solidly within the covenant community. The point is Moses failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. And I'm just curious. Anybody here identify with Moses? You see, the truth is Moses needed someone to deliver him. To deliver him from his own sin and his own moral failure. And friends, that's exactly what we, all of us, each of us need. We need a deliverer. Someone to deliver us from the things that hold us in bondage. Broken relationships, broken promises, addictions to money, to alcohol, to drugs, to stuff, to sex, to work, to children. Whatever it is, deliver us from weak faith and an unwillingness to believe in and to trust in and to love and to obey God. To deliver us from our self-centered, small, little lives. Anybody unclear about this? Don't be. You see, we all need a deliverer just like Moses. And that deliverer, of course, is who Moses met at the bush, the angel of the Lord. That deliverer is the great I am. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the very bread of life. Jesus is the deliverer that we all need, not just once upon a time, but every day. 
Jesus is who we need to deliver us from the things that hold us in bondage. Jesus is our deliverer. It was Jesus, you see, in the burning bush. It was Jesus in the wilderness later on in this story, being the manna, the bread of life. It was Jesus at the cross. And only, only, only Jesus can deliver us today, right now, from whatever is defeating us and holding us in bondage, from whatever causes us to be broken. And so, (laughs) I read this story, and what I hear in it and what I see in it is a call to come to Jesus. To come to the only one who can, who does, who will deliver. You know, if if you're unclear about your relationship to Jesus, there's a a class coming up. And uh, without apology, I, I mentioned this because... Uh, It's just one of the best things we've got going here at Deer Creek, and it's Christianity Explored. And if you're unclear about what you think about Jesus, who he claims to be, or any of those kinds of things, this is the class for you. It's starting up in February the 14th, and I highly recommend you join. It's, it's It's a quick look through the book of Mark. And at the very least, when you come out the other end of that class, you'll have some clarity around what you think about Jesus. Are you going to follow him? Is he God? Is he the deliverer? And um, highly recommend that to you. And uh, if you've been walking with Jesus for decade upon decade, I would say to you, come to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Make that the priority of your life. Well, pray with me. Father God, we sang earlier in this service that it was our intent to want to magnify Jesus. We sang about doing that on the altar of our lives, the sacrifices of our life. God, would you lead us to have great clarity about the importance of decisions we make, things we do and don't do, priorities we give to uh, our use of time and our use of treasure, our use of the talents and the skills and the abilities we have. Give us great clarity around how best to magnify Jesus Christ. And God, forgive us For the truth about us is that we fail and we fail and we fail at this. But God, we are so, so, so thankful that you deliver us from our failure. You deliver us from our sin. You sent the deliverer, your son, Jesus, to rescue us. Thank you. We pray in his name. Amen.